You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your internet privacy today and get an extra three months free with a one-year package at expressvpn.com slash missionlog. This episode is also brought to you by Helix Sleep. Mission Log listeners get $200 off their new mattress and two free pillows when you take the sleep quiz and order today at helixsleep.com slash missionlog. This episode is also brought to you by Eagle Moss Hero Collector and the brand new The Orville Official Ships Collection. The first ships in the collection, including The Orville itself, are available now at herocollector.com slash Orville. Use code MISSION10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase with free shipping. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 387, Rocks and Shoals. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we turn over every rock and wade through every shoal to uncover and discover the morals, meanings, and messages of each and every episode of Star Trek. This week, Rocks and Shoals, the one where Cisco goes toe-to-toe with a Jem'Hadar soldier who shows us the true meaning of honor as Kira struggles to get her resistance proved back. We'll get to trivia and the story in just a moment, but first a word from our sponsor, Eagle Moss, and the official Orville Starships collection. I love talking about these little starships. Starships that are Star Trek starships and Star Trek starships that are not Star Trek starships, (laughs) which are the Eagle Moss Hero Collector, the Orville collection. Now, these ships are developed in partnership and based on Seth MacFarlane's hit science fiction comedy drama, these ships are from the brand new The Orville Ships Collection, and they're available only from Eagle Moss Hero Collector. The first ships in this collection, the Planetary Union ship, the USS Orville, the ECV-197, and its shuttle, the ECV-1971, are available right now directly from the Eagle Moss shop for only $29.95 each, with free shipping. There's even an oversized XL edition of the Orville available for only $74.95. And no matter what you order, use code MISSION10 at checkout to get 10% off your entire purchase. Now, you know how it's done. You know how Eagle Moss works. They do a careful study of the models from production materials, and then they craft them out of die-cast metal and high-quality ABS materials. And then, oh no, they're not done there. Then they hand-paint them for stunning accuracy. Each ship comes with a display base, of course they do, and they're beautiful, plus collector's magazine filled with concept art, interviews, behind-the-scenes details of the Orville TV series. Now, additional ships are slated to join the collection soon, but these are the ones you want to get while you can. So if you're interested and you want to find out more, and we hope you do, full details including comprehensive views of each ship and ordering information can be found at HeroCollector.com slash Orville. Use code MISSION10 at checkout to get 10% off your entire purchase. All right, before we get to this week's trivia, here is how you can find all of the different ways to stay in touch with us. Mission Log relies on your participation, so that's why we want to hear from you. 
Help us spread the word by giving us a like or a share on Facebook or Twitter, where you'll find us at Mission Log Pod. Your reviews at Apple Podcasts help other people find the show, and we do appreciate it. You can reach us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by calling 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, turning over every trivia rock and wading through every trivia shoal with his deep waders. Here we are with John Champion with this week's trivia. With my waiters on. This is how we do trivia every week. You know, you, you oh, have trivia to. waiters are a thing. Oh yeah, yeah. You have to have your trivia waiters. Uh, official mission log trivia waiters, patent pending, trademark, copyright. So Rocks and Shoals was written by Ronald D. Moore. Ron has been writing all along for DS9 since season three, of course, and the most recent teleplay of his that we discussed was in the cards. And for this one, he had a bit of a challenge in that it was filmed after what would be the next episode aired. That would be Sons and Daughters. This gets complicated when you're in a long story arc and making sure a continuity of the story is correct from episode to episode. So that was what was before him there. This one was directed by Mike Vijar. This is Mike's third DS9 outing in the director's chair. He most recently directed Impact Noor last season. Location shooting. You know, I love it. We return here to Soledad Canyon, which we've seen a few times on DS9. The most recent time was those exterior shots for the ship, you know, the one with the ship. And we mentioned how brutal that shoot was, and this was more of the same. Now, they thought it would be okay. They thought temperatures would be around 80 degrees with a light breeze, perfectly fine. But no, no, temperatures soared unexpectedly over 120 degrees some days. And that made everyone, particularly those in heavy makeup, completely miserable. Now let's talk about guest stars. We have a number of new faces in this episode. First up on the station, we encounter Vedic Yassim, played by Lilian Chauvin. French-born, Lillian started in theater and worked her way into making movies in 1950. She'd actually moved to the U.S. at the tender age of 21 in 1946. A long career as a writer, director, actor, and acting coach followed, and you could find her in shows and movies. Everything from Ugly Betty and Catch Me If You Can to Predator 2 and the man from UNCLE. Then we got to know two more people on our Defiant crew, including Joseph Fuqua as Gordon and Sarah McDonnell as Neely. Now, this is Joseph's only Star Trek appearance, uh, but here's an interesting bit of trivia. His professional acting credits begin and end with the same role. J.E.B. Stewart, first as Major General in the 1993 film Gettysburg, and then as Colonel in the 2003 film Gods and Generals. To make it even more poetic, his father and grandfather in real life were U.S. Army generals. Now, with Neely, you may think that we saw her before. Well, we saw a lot of crew members in the previous episode, but any resemblance is purely coincidental. This time, we are meeting Neely, played by Sarah McDonnell, who started out as a child actor, the star of a short-lived TV series called Muggsy in 1976, 
Fast forward to the early 90s, and an adult Sarah begins showing up in Murder, She Wrote, Friends, and in a recurring role on Weird Science. This is her only Star Trek appearance. And on the opposite side, we have a handful of Jem'Hadar soldiers and a wounded Vorta. One of those Jem'Hadar is played by Paul Eckstein, who is making his Star Trek debut here, but will be back as another Jem'Hadar and then on Voyager in different alien roles. Shortly after his acting work, Paul turned to writing, where he has turned in a number of scripts for shows like Law and Order, Criminal Intent, and Godfather of Harlem. The third, who is in command of the Jem'Hadar soldiers, is Ramataklan, played by Phil Morris. Now, I hope you remember that Phil was a Klingon. He played Thopak in the DS9 episode Looking for Parmach in All the Wrong Places. And I hope you remember that he starred in the 1980s revival of Mission Impossible, playing the son of the character that his real-life dad, Greg Morris, played in the 1960s. Norman will remember that Phil guest starred on Babylon 5, and none of you are forgiven if you forget that Phil was one of the stars and chief purser of Love Boat The Next Wave. Finally, we have Christopher Shea in the role of Kivan Arvorta. This appearance on DS9 really comes at the beginning of Christopher's professional on-camera career. Prior to this, most of his work was in the New York comedy theater scene, after this episode, though, just a whole string of TV guest appearances opened up for him. Christopher shows up on Charmed, Will and Grace, Cougar Town, Mad Men, Modern Family, and more. We will also see him again. He'll be back on DS9. Then we'll see him jump over to Voyager and Enterprise in different roles. The following segment contains frank discussion of the state of Chief O'Brien's pants. You have been warned. Prologue. Limping their way back to Federation space in a near-powerless and warp-crippled Jem'Hadar attack ship, Captain Sisko, Chief O'Brien, Dax, Nog, and Garrick along with a few surviving crew members, are desperately trying to outrun and outmaneuver two real Jem'Hadar fighters who are in hot pursuit. The chief has been unable to restore main power, so our hero's only chance of survival is to hide in a nearby dark matter nebula, but before they can, their ship is racked by enemy fire and Jadzia is severely injured. Dr. Bashir believes the Dax symbiote may be as well. And just to make matters even worse... Garrick reestablishes external visual contact just in time to see the ship plummet powerlessly towards the surface of an unknown M-Class planet. Act 1. Fortunately for Sisko, his disabled Jem'Hadar ship crashes, or rather, splashes, into a large body of water on this unknown planet, as two Jem'Hadar soldiers watch this happen from afar while discussing their somewhat similar plight. Their Vorta's decision to explore the nebula caused them to crash land two days ago. Meanwhile, Sisko and company, having survived their water landing, fashion a makeshift raft to get their supplies and an injured yet stable Jadzia to shore. And just when things started to look up, the chief looks down and notices his torn pant leg, 
which becomes the final and most absurd straw that breaks the chief's back as he and Sisko break out with laughter. On Terok Nor, Major Kira wakes up to the same old, same old. A reaffirming look in the mirror before work, taking the turbo lift to ops, politely greeting co-workers all along the way, and finally sitting down at her station with a personal rack to Gino delivery. But it's far from the same old. Each station, much like the turbo lift earlier, is filled solely with Cardassians and Jem Hadar. Back in the Jem Hadar base cave, the injured Vorta, Kievan, and third Ramataklan mutually understand the direness of their situation. Priority one, establish communications with the Dominion. Priority two, do so before the supply of Ketracel White runs out. Sisko and his crew similarly set up camp in another cave where they can care for Dax and plan their next move. Meanwhile, Garrick and a very suspicious Nog, which delights Garrick to no end, scout for food and supplies until a Jem'Hadar patrol unshrouds and takes them prisoner. Act 2 Garrick and Nog are taken to the Jem'Hadar camp for questioning. Nog offers up the pre-programmed anti-interrogation rank and serial number response. Garrick, however, does what he does best. Lie. But his facade is easily seen through as Keevan holds up Garrick's Starfleet com badge. But all of this byplay aside, Keevan just needs to know if there's a doctor in Garrick's unit, to which Garrick tactically replies, Yes. Saving both his and Nog's lives in the process. As they are taken to their cell... Keevan specifically orders 3rd Ramataklan and his platoon to assess the Starfleet camp and report back, but not to engage. Back on Terak Nor, in Odo's office, Jake Sisko is interviewing Odo and Kira on a variety of very sensitive topics, especially the Vorta facilitators who may be the first overture to Dominion occupation, and a possible demonstration to voice opposition against that decision by Vedic Yassim. Jake presses them just a bit too far, and Odo and Kira end the interview, post-haste. Returning to base camp, Ensign Gordon tells Sisko and the Chief that Nog and Garrick are missing, and as Sisko and crew set out to find their missing comrades, 3rd Ramataklan's unit did as ordered, waited, and observed, but not for long, as one of them, suffering from extreme white withdrawal, disobeys orders and opens fire on their enemies. Act 3. Knowing that his unit has suffered a severe breach in discipline and no longer having the ability to shroud their position because of the effects of the Ketracel White withdrawal, 3rd Ramataklan orders their retreat, which surprises and puzzles Sisko, hoping that there is a tactically advantageous reason for why they stopped firing on them and why they can no longer shroud. Hearing of this attack, Keevan is furious, but 3rd steps in between his rage and his men taking responsibility for their failure. No matter, though, as Keevan has new orders for him. Meanwhile on Terek Nor, Kira sits in council with Vedic Yassim and tries to talk her out of protesting against the Dominion. However, Yassim turns the conversation around on Kira, wondering why she has become, quote-unquote, a defender of evil and an apologist for the Dominion. Kira tries to oversimplify her delicate political situation by telling Yassim that she simply doesn't understand the bigger picture, to which Yassim insinuates that tomorrow, Kira will understand all too well. Back on the planet, it appears that 3rd Ramataklan has surrendered to offer Sisko the Vortis deal. 
exchanging Cisco and Bashir for Nog and Garrick. As Cisco ponders this transaction, he appeals to the Jem Hadar's sense of honor, especially when that honor is held sway by one as cunning and treacherous as Kievan and the rest of the Vorta. However, Cisco's ploy to sow dissent fails to break through Jem'Hadar training as Ramataklan states that he was only instructed to deliver the message, but will carry out Cisco's request to make sure that the terms of the negotiation are honored. Act 4. The prisoner exchange goes as planned, as Nog races forward ahead of Garrick, eager to create some space between him, Garrick, and his captors. Back on Tarak Nor, Kira arrives in front of the Bajoran Temple, meets with Odo, and anticipates of the chaos that is to come, hoping that Vedic Yassim heeded her words in their earlier discussion. Based on the lack of people on the promenade, Kira's fears seem assuaged. Even Jake is surprised as he arrives informing Kira that Yassim asked him to be there at exactly 1400 hours. Suddenly, they hear someone nearby say, What's she doing? Kira and Jake look up to see Yassim, and only her, alone and unarmed standing atop the promenade with a noose around her neck, yelling, Evil must be opposed. Yassim drops feet first from the upper level as Kira watches in terror as the rope snaps taut, causing Yassim's feet to dangle inches from the ground, her Vedic's headdress falling to the floor just below them. As Sisko and Bashir finally arrive and confront Kivan, Bashir goes immediately to performing emergency surgery to save the Vorta's life. In the midst of a captive audience, the Jem'Hadar cadre who are understandably curious about the inner workings of a Vorta. Back on Tarak Nor, Major Kira wakes up to no longer the same old, same old. Quite the opposite, in fact. This morning, every moment and every part of her daily routine is now a constant and painful reminder of what Vedic Yassim accused Kira of being— a Dominion apologist, a defender of evil. In a fog of shame and disbelief, she stands from her station and leaves. Meanwhile, on the planet, Kevin is healing nicely as he reveals his ultimate endgame to Sisko and Bashir. Upon opening his Ketracel white chest, Kevin confesses that there is only one vial of white left, which means that very soon he will lose control of the Jem'Hadar, and once that happens, they will kill everyone on the planet, including themselves unless Sisko and his crew can kill them first. But how? Well, if Kevin sends his troop to where Sisko is waiting to gun them down, then Sisko, and most importantly O'Brien, who is the only one who can fix Kevin's comm system, are saved. As is Kevin in the process. I mean, to Avorta, what are the lives of a few unyieldingly loyal troops when it comes to self-preservation? Act 5. As Sisko and his crew debate about the morality of what they must do, Sisko takes it upon himself to cut through the moral red tape and decides what must needs doing. It's either them or the Jem'Hadar who is leaving the planet alive, and to Sisko, the easy choice is asking Dax if there is a third choice. Later on Tarak Nor, Odo comes upon Kira, who is staring down at the spot where Yasim hanged herself. Kira has come to a crossroads and questions who she is anymore and what happened to the freedom fighter that helped her free her people from the Cardassians only a short time ago. But she quickly remembers her training and embraces her resistance fighter belief that if you aren't fighting your enemy, you're helping them. Odo, knowing this look in Kira, chooses not only to get out of her way, but to join her in forging the new resistance on the station to fight the Dominion and especially the Cardassians. Again. 
As the remaining Jem'Hadar march in formation through a very wide open canyon, Sisko, from a tactically safe position, tries to reason with Third Ramathaklan. Sisko offers him a chance to surrender, telling him that Kievan and the Vorda don't deserve the honor and loyalty afforded him by the very same troops he's ordered to be slaughtered. But to no avail. Resigning to their unwavering belief in the order of things, Third Ramathaklan and his troops open fire, only to be cut down soon thereafter by their enemy, the enemy who Kievan gave a greater tactical advantage. Soon after the massacre, a very smug and sure Kievan arrives, surrendering himself to Sisko under the protection of the Articles of War, and lamenting the fact that if he'd had just two more vials of white, Sisko and his crew would be dead. With his favor rifle trained on Kiva, an enraged Sisko tells the chief to get Kievan out of his sight, and for a burial detail to be made to honor the fallen Jem Hadar. The end. Well done on the recap, Norman. A lot to talk about in this episode. But I want to revisit something that we actually brought up uh, last week. And we were talking about the technology on board the Jem'Hadar ship. Uh, Those little eyepieces, those little viewers that they have. um, I think we actually, we got a better functional view of them this time around than we did previously. And I can see how it'd be very disorienting if you have a 360-degree view of everything that is outside while you have it on. Like, it was kind of a cool, you know, it's a cool effect that they're doing anyway where you see a little bit of the, the kind of shadow of what's physically in front of you. Like, Cisco's looking through it, and there's Dax, and there's kind of an outline of the ship, but then you see literally what is outside the ship wherever you look. And I thought it's kind of like... um I don't know if you've ever used any of the star mapping apps uh, for a smartphone where you, you know, it's sensitive to GPS and direction and, you know, and the gyroscope that's inside. So you hold it up and then it's mapping live the stars that you're looking at. It's very Hmm. cool. But then I thought, okay, if you had that right in front of your eye all the time (laughs) and you're also trying to pilot a ship and bark out orders and avoid getting killed, this would be very difficult. I can see how he got that headache. I, I I can see and and empathize with Cisco because it's like VR. When you're mm-hmm. in VR and you have an all-encompassing visual experience, and then you remove that, it's very disorienting. Yeah. And just to kind of link this back to some of the last Starfighter references that you have mentioned before, like the Deep Space Nine Death Blossom mm-hmm. and how the minefield looks like the final frontier or the last frontier. <laughs> right. The eyepiece reminds me a lot of that mechanical eyepiece that the commander of the battleship had kind of like maneuver across his eye when he says, Commander, what are we going to do? We die. (laughs) Totally. Totally that. Yes. It reminded me a little bit of that. What was up with the chief just using the D word, meaning damn, like all over the place? It reminded me of that scene at the end of Star Trek Four. Where, where Kirk says, you know, hey, he goes, where Spock, where's the hell's my power? Yeah. <laughs> and he says, one damn minute, Admiral. Yes, it's I, hilarious. I thought of the same thing because it, it doesn't fit. And it feels like, okay, you're, you're making a point of it not fitting. But no, it just, it definitely doesn't fit. <laughs> Don't worry about like Nog being, you know, uh, exposed to the horrors of war. 
Right. Just make sure that he's not vulgar. Make sure he doesn't end curse. Experience. Does. Yes. Yes. Yeah. A, a human curse. Human yeah, uh, curses. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> so, and, and speaking of Nog, I, I really like that moment where he's walking around with Garrick. Uh, they're on the planet. He says, "You tied me up and threatened to kill me. I won't turn my back on you again." And Garrick says, "Get out there. Maybe hope for you yet." It was a good moment. It was funny, and it was a good callback to what we saw in Impact Noor. But if we take it seriously for just a moment, that is a lot to ask of Nog to go off on a mission alone with Garrick that soon after Garrick was about to kill him. I don't think I'd be comfortable with that. Well, hopefully they listen to our show mm-hmm. and realize that the the effects of a chemical imbalance in someone doesn't really cause them to be blamed for something. I so yes. yeah, you know if if. You know, Nog tuned his ears to a certain decibel level. Perhaps he heard our show. Possibly. Uh, Using the ansible of subspace. Right. Possibly (laughs) so. So who doesn't love being able to heat a rock in Star Trek with a phaser? That is like a time-honored tradition Classic. We're going back to first season. We're we're going back to Enemy Within. Wonderful. It would be so funny if Dax did something like, can you bring me like a pot of hot coffee? I know, right? (laughs) As a touchstone. But hey, you know what? Phaser heating. I love my wand company, like, phaser rock light yes. thing. Yes. Because I do the exact same thing. It's, it warms me up at night in my, in my uh, solo room. Yeah. And I, so if all I had a pot of hot coffee, it would have been the perfect experience. Oh, that's great. The bit about uh, Garrick escaping the USS Centaur I thought was a nice bit of detail since we just saw them engage the Centaur before they went on the mission to destroy the Ketracel White base. Yes. Yeah, I thought that was very cool. It's a callback, but it's such a quick callback. And it's one of those things where it doesn't matter if you get it or not. But it was just, you know, uh, a dramatic moment from right before the the previous episode. Why not? It It was a perfect, perfect little moment. Now, here's an interesting bit of detail since I was talking about the uh, location shooting in the trivia segment. There's... There's a little bit of water there at Soledad Canyon, but not enough to do the kind of scale that they needed for these shots. So they added in a lot digitally. And that brings me to a point about this episode. As I mentioned in the last two episodes, how we're really seeing the end of all that extensive, newly shot model work on Star Trek. Now we're really going all in on digital. And... um this is really a delineation point where we're seeing so many more digital effects. And it's a mixed bag. I, I, I got to be honest. And, and look, I, I'm not bringing it up because I feel like I want to bag on primitive effects. I feel like that's a very easy thing to do. I mean, anybody mentions bad CGI and, you know, that scene from the Scorpion King with the rock immediately comes to mind, you know. And we can Shivers. make yeah, and we can make fun of that all day long. And then that changes every few years. They get better and better. The the effects techniques get better and better. But because we're seeing the change here, that's why I wanted to point it out. That shot of the stolen Jem'Hadar ship slipping into the ocean, not a great effect. Uh, but clearly they are paying attention to the environment that it's in, to the bit of smoke and the little bit of fire coming out of it. Some of those ships even around the station you have this, you know, traditional model shot of the station, but then you have layered in video effects of ships. Like I said, it's a mixed bag. I know it'll get better. 
I'm not trying to point it out here to just like poke fun or say that they did a bad job. They certainly didn't. Um, but we're just seeing this change that is very much of its time. Yeah, you could tell that there were um, a, a lot of different attempts at trying to tell the story through the the best effects that they could apply at the time for the money that they were allowed to spend. Yeah. You know, I mean, we you know we're all realists here that when we when we come to knowing that there are production limitations involved when it comes to a budget. Yeah. You know, some some of the episodes, obviously the like season premieres and cliffhangers and sweeps week episodes, mm-hmm. those are the ones that are going to get the big money. Um, I have a question though about Catrasel White yeah. when uh, Keevan opens up his chest and pulls out one vial. Does only one Jem'Hadar get it and? Would it be the leader always, or do you have to earn that right to get the white? Or do they just, like, take a couple of seconds of it and pass it around? Like, how does that work? Right. See, I wondered about that, and I thought they could or they would go in that direction where it is shared among them. Like, mm-hmm. one takes a hit and then gives it to the next one, and you just sort of you try to chill out and, and you know, <laughs> ride out whatever hey, man, is coming. you got an extra smoke. <laughs> right. <laughs> But then I thought, well, uh, okay, if you're the third, and and we'll definitely get into the character of Ramataklan because he seems pretty um, honorable, would he be looking out for his men to share it and make sure that everything is done fairly and equally? Or do you strategically just, if only one person can have it, you give it to the one who you need the most, who's the most talented, smartest, deadliest soldier? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it reminded me of that scene in Saving Private Ryan where it's towards the end, and I think uh, one of the characters was chewing gum, and the partner that he was with, it, hey, do you got any more of that? And he just literally like splits his chewed up gum in yeah. half. Right. Because that's what you do yeah. when you're in that situation. So I think, it, I don't know, for me, it would have been neat like if, if Third just took it, like you said, just kind of filled his neck tube up a little bit and then passed it around (laughs) i mean like i said like they need a fix or else they're going to go insane yeah so yeah i love how you describe that it's very poetic like uh here you go uh fill up your neck tube with this and get back to me (laughs) hey we tech the tech here like no one else does on mission log uh we we probably won't get into it a whole lot in this episode but i do want to point out that i love how we're getting real payoff with jake's role as a journalist um now we don't know if those stories are getting out necessarily or in what form but regardless um you know functionally for the show this works because he is exposing information to the audience to us for the character though he's getting better at his job and we're still seeing that place where real life motivations bump up against the journalistic prerogative of getting the whole story. So I I think it's so cool that this is a thing that they found about Jake and have continued and have continued in a way that makes it count. And I think that uh, Sirach is, he's feeling that out a little bit better as these episodes progress because they don't feel as clumsy to him Mm -hmm. as they were, say, at the beginning of, oh, I'm a journalist now. How does a journalist... How does a journalist behave? How does he push? How does he not push? How does he go for the, you know, go for the gold when he asks certain questions? Or is he reluctant, as he was towards the end of asking the bigger, harder questions? Right. But the most important thing, though, is how does he know that something big is going to happen on the station before Odo does? <laughs> That's what I want to know. I, I well, I, I wondered about that. You, you think that Odo knows everything, but then maybe as sort of the kid who's unassuming and who's not part of the security team, maybe mm. it's easier for him to get information. 
I, you know, I understand yeah. that, and I think it makes perfect logical sense if you don't have somebody that could literally turn himself into a fly and fly around and hear everything. <laughs> right. Yes. Which is what I would do if I was yes. security. Yes. Now, here's something that I think was super cool, and I don't know why they haven't gotten back to this fashion yet, but when they're walking around with their phaser rifles slung low, they had their jackets zipped down. They looked so money, and they didn't even know it. Right. They looked so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a great look. It, it's like yeah. Rugged Bashir from the last episode. Absolutely. Yeah. Ooh, Rugged Bashir. That, that Rugged Bashir TM goes along with Gooey Bashir TM. Oh, yeah. And uh, 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 Casual Friday Odo. And Casual Friday. Yep. Yep. And, yep. Yeah. Those are, yeah. That's our next band. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Rugged Bashir. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and by the way, like I said, I, there's so much more to discuss, but I, I do really like that moment of Cisco getting under Ramadaclan's skin. Uh, it, mm. It's nice to see a good mind game happening right there in front of everybody. And Dax even kind of asked him, like, oh, you, you, were, you were sort of working on him there, weren't you? Uh, you know, sometimes it works. Well, there's a lot of truth to his truth. Yeah, you know, yeah. he was he was saying I think something that the Gem and Hard they it's not like they didn't know that that was going on. Mm-hmm. It's just well, I'll get into that later. Yeah. I don't want to <laughs> steal my own presentation. Sure. I liked when Nog ran in front of Garrick at the exchange because at first I was like, hey, he wants to get away from Garrick, but then, like Kevin said, he just saved your life. So I think Nog kind of trusts him now and just wants to get back to his camp. He's not afraid of Garrick yeah. anymore. Yeah. And I thought that the the direction, uh, Mike's direction of Yassim's uh, suicide was very effective because all you needed to understand were the elements. Right. And how effective and powerful those were. The the slow motion of, of Nana looking up, the rope just getting, like, snapping tight or taut, if you will. Yeah. And then just seeing her feet and then the, the headdress fall. All very, very economical, really, really powerful scene well and i'm glad you brought that up because let's talk about some other uh economical scenes and one of the well i'll preface it by saying that kira's alarm clock would never wake me up way too pleasant (laughs) way (laughs) too pleasant um but I'm, i'm glad it does the job for her but there's a great piece of writing and directing here and particularly a good piece of writing that there's no dialogue that second time that kira goes to where the alarm wakes her up she goes to work in ops they get across everything you need to know just by having Kira go to work, look at what's around her, and then get up and leave. That is the perfect example of show, don't tell. It was directed well. It was acted well. Primarily, it was written well just to get across what needs to happen. Oh, and, and speaking of good acting moments, uh, Cisco, this isn't a vote. There's... Cisco, my just very reminiscent of the Cisco in Children of Time when he was faced with another tough call and <laughs> saying that, no, 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 he's made his decision. This debate happening, this is not going to affect him. And he does, though, concede to Dax, you know, I'm still hoping that there's another way out of this, even though we know that there's not. And it was, uh, again, going back to directing, visually, it's such an interesting moment to have these two enemies meet in the open on their battlefield before agreeing to shoot each other. You know, there's something very, um, I I think, very humbling about that and also very uh, uh, tense about that as well. Like, these are people... Um, not both human, in this case, one human, one Jem'Hadar, but again, substitute whatever human enemy you want there. Just sizing each other up as people who have 
concerns, who have motivations, who have duties, and they're about to do this thing that is probably not the right thing, but they're going to do it anyway. And I think that ramps up like the storytelling. I'm sure we're going to probably discuss this uh, very soon, but it's this, the calm before the storm, but you know what's going to happen, and they know what's going to happen, but one part of that equation is saying it doesn't matter because we are trained to believe that this is the order of things. Mm -hmm. And that's the tragedy of, of that scene. And I think that that's really playing into how what, what Avery is, is feeding off of as, as Cisco's reaction to all of that and seeing Keevan walk across that field in one piece and with, you know, with that ass-eating grin on his face. <laughs> right. And Cisco said, you know what? If I shot him right now, I don't think anyone would care. Yeah. But yeah. It, that, would, that would plague his morality. So Cisco, I think he knew he got played. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. And, but, you know, uh, speaking of directing, as you were, and you mentioned the slow-mo in the, uh, the Vedic suicide, that battle scene at the end, the, the big push, as it were, it, it is very unlike Star Trek that we have seen thus far. And that whole thing takes place in about 10 seconds, maybe maybe 12. There, There is a moment, though, which is kind of funny if you watch it because it is slow-mo, and I was kind of watching it slow-mo on top of that. The Jem'Hadar on the far left of the scene, he actually starts his reaction before the phaser beam hits him. <laughs> he's he's sort of throwing himself back with the arm up uh, right before the uh, the phaser beam hits him. And I do have just one question that I want to leave this segment with uh, for you and for our listeners. And that question is can be summed up in one word. Stun? Is there going to be an episode about what that Klingon chef is doing on the station? The title should be Walks and Bowls. get back to rocks and shoals in just a moment but first a word from our sponsors this week norman i expressed to you once before what a nightmare it was in my life before shopping for a mattress i I don't know why that became such a difficult thing i mean it's harder than buying a car it seems like and i was so relieved to try out helix and their whole process at uh, helix.com slash mission log to actually pick my own mattress and have it be a simple process. Something that I didn't know that we want to all of our fans to know is that Helix Sleep has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete and it matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. And so that's what I did. I took literally a couple of minutes, went online, helixsleep.com slash mission log, put in my details, uh, height, weight, what size bed, and then it wants to know how you sleep. And and at first I thought, you know, I'm not really sure because I'm asleep when I'm doing it. So how would I know? But I, I paid attention and I realized, okay, well, I need kind of a firm mattress, a mobile support. And they have these pressure point supports and uh, I sleep on my side, but I also kind of move around a bit and it picked the perfect mattress for me. So after I took the quiz, I was matched with the Twilight mattress uh, because I needed something a little firm and I sleep on my side and also I probably move around a lot and who knows? I'm probably like, you know, working on the podcast in my sleep too. Now, it is definitely an upgrade over your standard mattress for sure. And here was one of my other favorite parts. It shows up at your door 
somehow magically they teched the tech and took this queen size mattress folded squeezed vacuumed down into this sort of like plastic shrink wrap in the box so the box doesn't look nearly like it contain a mattress and yet you open it up you open up the plastic and then you wait uh, you know like an hour or so and poof it magically becomes a mattress so that was a super cool part of the process too now helix is awesome you don't have to take my word for it but you're listening to me now so why not helix was actually awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by gq and by wired magazine just go to helixsleep.com slash mission log and take their two minute sleep quiz and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life they have a 10-year warranty and you get to try it out for 100 nights, risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash mission log. You know, Norman and everybody, there are tons of VPN providers out there. You've probably heard of a couple of them or more. And uh, some of you may have even used a VPN or many before. But I definitely, and Norman, I know you do too, we do our research on the sponsors that show up on Mission Log. And uh, we only recommend brands that we actually use and believe in. And I think we can both say with full confidence, ExpressVPN is the best VPN on the market and there are many reasons why. Well, first and foremost, what we enjoy the most and what is important to us is that ExpressVPN doesn't log your data. Now, lots of really cheap or free VPNs make money by selling your data to ad companies. You've heard about this before, and it is true. ExpressVPN developed a technology called Trusted Server that makes it impossible for their servers to log any of your info. And the second thing that we love is the speed. When we check it on our apps, on our phones, or on our computers, we know that the connection speed for ExpressVPN is very, very fast because we've tried many before. And many slow your connection down or make your device sluggish. Now, John and I have both been using ExpressVPN for about a year now, and we've noticed our internet speeds are blazing fast. Even when we connect to servers thousands of miles away, we can still stream HD quality videos with zero lag. And there's one other thing, that final element that uh, really makes ExpressVPN stand out for us, and that is ease of use. So there's not any programming, not any arcane data to learn. You just turn on the app, you click one button, boom, you're connected. That's it. Uh, so easy that your grandparents can do it. I, I mean, I don't know about your grandparents particularly. They're probably very smart people, but yes, it's so easy. Anybody can use it. And don't take just our word for it. Again, you know, Wired, The Verge, CNET, uh, so many tech experts out there rate ExpressVPN as the number one VPN in the world. So here's what you do. Protect yourself with the VPN that we use and trust. Use our link expressvpn.com slash mission log today and get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash mission log. Again, visit expressvpn.com slash mission log to learn more. Norman, when I was in the resistance, I despised people like me. Mm, indeed. <laughs> that is, I, there's, there's such great stuff with Kira here. And, and I want to go back to that word that you used in the last segment, efficiency. That is, I, I've said that I feel so many times on mission log that there is something really gold about 
a story told with efficiency where you don't need a lot of exposition. You don't need a ton of action to get it across. You just let the actors be in the moment. And that is what they did here uh, with a B plot that is truly so critical to this character. And what I thought was so interesting about this, there, there are many aspects to discuss here. It's probably so easy for us on the outside to look at a situation like this and just immediately recognize, okay, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, and where does that principle lie? And my fear is that in a similar situation, things get much blurrier in a real-life situation. History of full of people who went along because they thought that that was the right thing to do to go along. Others might have gone along because they were protecting themselves or their families. Um, others may have gone along because they thought that maybe they could make things better from the inside. And we see that kind of discussion that Kira is having with Odo. Like, well, but if we're working with them, then we'll have access, we'll have information. So there's so much going on here to the decisions that they've made in this position that they find themselves, and particularly that Kira finds herself. Um, go along to get along. That's, uh, yeah. you know, that's a pretty standard trope. Yeah, and, and it makes sense. I mean, people who resist will have a harder time. Some might get killed. Resistance is futile. Yeah. <laughs> so I've heard. So I've heard. You know, yeah. they they might get killed. Uh, some resistance movements will fail entirely. You know, but th this is a moment where Kira has become the man, and I love the challenge here that Yasin gives her. What will it take, Kira? And she just says, "Vedic, you don't understand." And and that is. That's almost as tragic an answer as anything because it, it shows this complete disconnect from their goals and this complete disconnect from Kira truly being able to sympathize and understand the situation. And I really thought about um, Vedic Yassim and what drove her and thinking about a historical parallel and the the image that came to mind and so many listeners have seen this image, um, Tik Kong Duk, who in Saigon, he, he was a Buddhist priest and in 1963 uh, self-immolated, uh, became a, uh, I can't remember if it was a Pulitzer Prize winning photo, but it was a journalistic uh, prize winning photo. And here was somebody who in his sect was being persecuted by the uh, uh, Catholic dominant government that was there at the time. And being pushed so far to the edge that his method of protest to get the eyes of the world on the situation was to do this extreme thing. And I couldn't help but make that connection in my head with what uh, Yassim was going through. It was very iconic. And mm. that's the first thing that popped into my head, too. I think that there are going to be listeners of the show of a certain generation that remembers either they remember seeing it in real time as it was published, or they remember seeing it in the history books. There are those iconic images, this being one of them. And I have to believe, because the writers of Deep Space Nine are so well ingrained with war-type stories and history of war, that the only way that to economically convey this particular message was to do something as extreme on Deep Space Nine as they did in this part of history in Vietnam, yeah. you know. So I think that was a very smart choice, and it was 
the way that, again, I, I mentioned it earlier, the way they shot it, very, very direct. There was not a lot of pretense to it. It was what it was, and it was very impactful. Yeah. It, it was drama without being overly dramatic. And that is a really fine line um, that, you know, unfortunately, because it's TV and it, and it has to be visual, uh, sometimes they cross that line. But the, this and so many other moments in this show, I thought, were played out with the subtlety that they needed um, and it, just to deliver exactly the right kind of impact. Let's, uh, I, you know, let, let's talk about Jake a little bit here because I, I know that you've got some notes about Jake, and then then I think we really want to get into the uh, the the journey of the Gem Hadar here and and what that means for Cisco and our crew. Well, I think first of um, first and foremost, and I'm not sure how you felt about it, but this is how I saw Jake in this episode. I think that Jake is actually becoming the point of view of the Star Trek fans that want to ask the question through the fourth wall, meaning that as a journalist, he's asking questions that we ourselves, as we're watching this episode, would ask in real time. One of my favorite scenes is when he's interviewing Kira and Odo. He's not just a journalist. He is he's asking the tough questions, the hard questions, the questions that in the narrative we are trying to make sense of, especially with the protest. Why mm -hmm. would you, as a Star Trek show entertain the aspect of shutting down free speech or the ability to gather and protest against evil. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is me putting on the writer's hat, but you <laughs> got to fight for your right to protest. <laughs> I have to steal a little yes. of the Beastie Boys there. Fair but enough. They shut down his questioning fairly quickly. And I felt that this particular scene was super relevant to say, in 2020, when George Floyd protests mm -hmm. emerged, the Black Lives Matters movement emerged mm -hmm. and went full full throttle in 2020, or any of the protests that were um, that were assembled to fight the racism and the tyranny mm -hmm. and just the overall feeling of dissent uh, that was happening at the highest stages of our government, the United States government, I should caveat. Yeah. But what would happen? if all of those were just summarily dismantled or try, they tried to suppress them, but what if they succeeded right. at the very, very base levels of their organizations? Like Kira, if there was a Kira in their organization saying, you don't get it, don't protest, just go along to get along. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that that was a a complex minefield of a conversation to have, particularly during that time. 2020 was a year full of protests um, in many places and many sorts and to many degrees. But then sort of reminding yourself to say that wherever my political or social affiliations might be, just the process of protest is critical. The, the, mm -hmm. the process of protest is something, you know, and again, look, I'm, I'm speaking from my perspective in the U.S. and given our difficult and interesting history. But, you know, that is something that is baked into uh, the American experience is that protest is part of being part of the U.S., uh, part, part, you know, of uh, the American citizenry. And there is something incredibly chilling about somebody just saying like, yeah, don't, don't even bother. 
Just we're, we're, we're going to nip that before it can even get off the ground. Uh, that should make someone's blood freeze. Well, it's it's understanding care's complacency that is, you know, at the heart. One of the one of the bigger aspects of uh, of her character's development, especially in this episode, because we have to believe that the right to protest to oppose what is morally unjust or corrupt, like that is that is baked in the DNA of people that want to oppose tyranny or oppression. Um, and if the if the listeners would indulge me, there is a scene that I'm going to reference. And I think it's a very powerful quote. It was in Babylon 5. And uh, Jakar said, and this is relative to what we're saying here, Jakar said, no dictator, no invader can hold an imprisoned population by force of arms forever. There is no greater power in the universe than the need for freedom. Against that power, governments and tyrants and armies cannot stand. Though it takes a thousand years, we will be free. So I paraphrase that a little mm-hmm. bit, but that's what we're getting at here. You have to be able to take the stand against tyranny. You have to be able to give people the, ex- the, uh, the option to exercise their right. And if you don't, you, you truly do become what Vedic Yassim said about here. You become the apologist for evil. Yeah. And, and you can see and feel that self-loathing in Kira. Uh, which is what I look there's so much to take away from this episode but I will absolutely take that away from this episode because it's um, an important moment for her a series of moments for her and um, I think it's just critical to kind of uh, our understanding of of where her storyline is going now let's switch over and talk about the Jem'Hadar <laughs> because the the Kira plot line is so great. That is the B plot, even though it really doesn't have to be. Uh, it is super strong. But uh, let's talk about honor among Jem'Hadar and probably many other aspects of being Jem'Hadar. Um, Cisco is in an impossible position. And at every turn, he's trying to return to a position of principle, negotiation and mutual respect and preservation of life. And every one of those moments, he is just getting knocked down. And there's a tragedy to this episode, to seeing that situation degrade, where he can't get the upper hand, you know, on principle or morality or or try to talk his way out of it. Um, and there is a... Uh, uh, a scene here, I mean, there are so many great moments of dialogue, but there is a scene here where uh, Garrick and O'Brien are sniping with each other. And O'Brien says, there are rules even in war. And Garrick says, correction, humans have rules in war, rules that make victory a little harder to achieve, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And he's right. I mean, they're both right. O'Brien is right that we have rules. And Garrick is right that, yeah, following those rules might make it a little harder to win the victory. But do we or how do we keep playing by the rules even when the enemy isn't? Or in this case, maybe the more subtle difference is that the enemy is playing by the rules, but it's their rules, which sadly leave no room for interpretation beyond what is handed to them. It's a very narrow definition of what they could or should do. Well, there is a loose interpretation of a passage from Sun Tzu's The Art of War, which essentially the the message is the battle has already been won before it has ever been fought. 
That is because the groundwork has been laid. The momentum has been dictated. The resources already have been measured and the effort has already been countermeasured. So everything here is, I would say, by Keevan's standards. So Keevan mm-hmm. essentially forced Cisco to do his bidding because in the end, it's either the preservation of their lives or not. And that's what Cisco said at the end. It's not a choice. Yeah. Right? There's no reason to discuss this morally. I understand that we're the Federation and morals are our thing, but you can't have a debate about morals if you're dead. Yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You know? So now we're getting kind of like the base code of where we're going, I think, with Deep Space Nine. It's not that they're abandoning the principles. It's just that there are... There are higher needs at play here. You can't do a good thing if you are not able to do so because you have been wiped off a planet or a galaxy or you are completely erased from history. Yeah. Where do you defend morals there? So I think that's where Garrett comes into play with his pragmatism, as biting as it may be. <laughs> you know, he says, you know, Garrett, he says, it's either us or me or them. So, Yeah. Why is this choice hard? Why is there so much hand-wringing about it? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Garrick is somebody who's raised in a completely different cultural context. Um, who's, again, it's not to say that he is unprincipled, but his his method of understanding that and, and the, the steps that he would take to survive this kind of situation are completely different from what Cisco at all would do. And, and that that's where, you know, it does get interesting for me that here you have the Jem'Hadar who are bound by this honor and bound by loyalty. But I think that is an incredibly slippery position to be in. We can look at somebody like Ramataklan and go, you know what? He is standing true to his word he stays true to his uh, oaths, his loyalty. He even says that he was born to play this role. But I would also take the position that you can be dedicated. You can have these virtuous aspects, but you can be dedicated to completely the wrong cause. And that's what's so sad about seeing Cisco before and now try to talk a Hadar into being something beyond what they think they are. Because that's where we want to see that Star Trek, you know, classic kind of quote unquote Star Trek story play out. We want to see that uh, that other being step out of the limitations that are either self-imposed or have been imposed upon them and say, well, wait a minute. I, I don't have to follow this one particular path. I can actually be better than my programming. And I mean, in this case, the Gemini are literally are programmed to be what they are. I mean, it goes all the way back to when Odo was trying to raise that that Jem'Hadar foundling. Mm-hmm. And from just from infancy to teenhood, the programming was there. It's encoded in them. Yeah. At the same time, though, we have seen really strong examples of Jem'Hadar fighting for a certain modicum of independence. And even here, like Third Ramataklan said, I will discipline my men. When Kevin says, no, I want to know who did this. And he's like, I will discipline my men. It is a little bit of flexing his independence within the auspices of 
the order of things. And, and see, that's what makes it so interesting when you go back to Odo trying to raise that young Jem'Hadar uh, because, yeah, all these negative traits are baked in, they are programmed in, but those have a balance of loyalty and uh, a sense of honor, different from Klingon honor, for sure. <laughs> you know, our, 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 our comparisons are, are not going to be quite the same there. So you just sort of look at it, and again, from that very Star Trek perspective, like, oh, if only we can encourage this one aspect to supersede the other, supersede the, uh, uh, the bloodthirsty desire to kill anything that is not like us. And I will, I'll be honest, I'll, I'll be a full transparency here. When I watch this episode, I texted John as I usually do, mostly because I'm like, do I get a softball episode this week or do you? <laughs> but I said, how is it that the writers have been able to nail time and time again the aspect of honor with the Jem Hadar? And I think that's what they want to do with the Klingons, but they just fall short. Yeah. Is it just because you have these two very iconic looking warrior races and they need to make one just a little bit more extreme one way, i.e. the, the, the headbutting Klingons, and then really just driven by honor and duty and loyalty in another way, showing the tragedy of what that does. The tragedy of not being able to independently think, what does this all mean? And these decisions have already been made for me based on this programming. And that's the difficulty. We'll, we'll come back to that in our wrap-up, I think. And that's that you've got Klingons and Jem'Hadar who are both bound by and, and fetishize the sense of honor. But inevitably, it leads them to these really unfortunate places. So we kind of go back to the human model in Star Trek again, which is to say, Honor is great, principle is great, morality is great, but you have to temper that with something else. You actually have to judge the, 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 the result of what I'm doing. We have to apply a layer of compassion here. We have to apply a layer of logic or understanding here. <laughs> there are many other things we have to take in mind other than just this one key phrase that we will use to justify any behavior. I think all of us have had that one job where we looked up one day and noticed everyone else working there was a Cardassian or a Jem'Hadar. Am I right? So we're at the end of Rocks and Shoals, and we've pretty much turned over as many as we possibly could, waded through as many little shallow pools of water that we were allowed to, but I think in the end, John, there still is a little bit left to be said. And that is, let's start with, does this episode hold up after all this time? How did this episode speak for you? What do you have to say about it? I, I mean, look, I was being super nitpicky earlier when I pointed out that the effects have changed a bit. But, you know, that's just the reality of production. That did not in any way take away from my enjoyment and my uh, interest in this episode. I like everything about it, and it's partly a testament to something that Ronald Moore often gets very right in his scripts, which is taking the broad strokes of drama, particularly here in a war story, and then making it very human and intimate. 
And this episode came at exactly the right time for me, which is to say that we've just come from two episodes that were all about the epic special effects and laying the groundwork for this huge war story. That's all fine. It was handled very well. I like those episodes a lot. But if we lose the human connection with the story, then there's no point. So um, I appreciated the dilemma in this episode. I appreciated the pain on Cisco's face at the end. I appreciated the pain that Kira is going through. I think all of that speaks to the reality of, uh, of the stakes here. Also, we didn't get into it yet. There is a fantastic use of guest stars here. I feel like Phil Morris is so good, but he's just underappreciated and overlooked. Um, he should be in more all the time because I think he's great. And Christopher Shea, holy cow, what a find, what a revelation. He just, he nails this role with perfection right away as Keevan, he gets everything that Jeffrey Combs brought to Wei Yoon and then just makes it his own. So I definitely hats off to him. I, you know, I kept referring to the B plot of Kira, but again, it just doesn't feel like a B plot. It's so good and it's so critical to everything that is DS9. So this one holds up very well. In fact, look, even without the larger context of the war with the Dominion, this would just work as a standalone story quite easily. I, I think it, it's that well-crafted and uh, that well-expressed that you could pull that element out of it and just let it go on its own. You in the same ballpark with me this time, or how do you feel? <laughs> Actually, I am, and I have a lot of compliments to, you know, to shower upon this episode. What I'm liking about this right now is that I'm feeling that serialized momentum within the last three episodes that we've done because the, the season finale of season five led into directly into uh, the premiere, and then that led directly into this. So you're feeling a sense of this continuation of a storyline, but at the same time, though, it has its own very specific beginning, middle, and end with not a, a direct call to a to-be-continued action, but you know that the, the storyline is moving forward from this point. The writing is, and I said this earlier and I'll say it again, it is so perfectly economical. You can tell so much story and convey so much of the, uh, the idea and the momentum of the narrative if you write it just so. And I think that they really did an exceptional job with the writing, the character development. Everyone had their own space to be able to flesh out their characters, to be able to show character motivations. And shifting in between the sets, between what we did on the planet or in the cave or on the Jem'Hadar ship or on the station. I think they all spent just the right amount of time to establish that these two concurrent storylines were happening to our two largest characters. You had Cisco and Kira going through this story and finding that somewhere along the line, they're losing themselves in this entire process. Yeah. And, and for me, uh, Nana just steals some of this episode right out from under everybody. That scene, the look when she saw Yasim kill herself, I, yeah. it was, and obviously it was augmented with slow motion, but wow. Like you said, you can't just give it dialogue. You have to let those moments breathe and let the audience sink in with that, with the terror of those moments. Yeah. But Christopher Shea, wow, wow, <laughs> wow, wow, wow. <laughs> yes. 
Yes. I just can't believe that someone like that can just drip so much of that smarminess so effortlessly like Jeffrey Combs does. But he Uh, did. He did. Much to his credit. He did. He did. Uh, Well, well, so that's the wrap-up of how we felt about it. What about morals, meanings, messages? Because there's, you know, as the kids say, there's a lot to unpack here. There is, and... Let me get my like unzip software so I can unzip this giant <laughs> file that I need to talk about. <laughs> what I came away with from this episode, and I do believe that it spans the two different stories, the A and B story, and that is the, the aspect of blind faith. I mentioned before that when Third Ramathaklan said that this is the order of the thing and order brings victory and victory brings life, that is a chant. It's a phrase. You know, it's, it's baked into their DNA. This is a path they do not deviate from, and once they do, it brings them dishonor. And to a soldier, human trained or otherwise, dishonor is a fate worse than death. If I may, there is a, uh, there's a famous quote by uh, Mencius, who was a student of Confucius, who said that, I dislike death. However, mm. there are things that I dislike more than death. Therefore, there are occasions where I will purposefully not avoid danger Hmm. because doing so would bring you the gravest dishonor and that to a soldier is something worse than death however blind faith (laughs) does have tears here that affect these characters in very detrimental ways obedience is a form of blind faith because it's blind obedience and that is what led to the demise of third ramathaklan and his men who he he swore to protect in front of the Vorta. It is my responsibility to discipline the men and to protect them and to lead this unit. He led them to their death based on this mantra. Why? Because it is the order of things. Blind faith also is a sense of duty. At the very beginning, he was telling his friend, we will hold this world for the dominion, but what if the dominion doesn't come? Then we will hold this world for the dominion until we die. Again, that is their last order, their last code of programming, and very reminiscent of, say, Japanese soldiers who were hiding in caves past the surrender of Imperial Japan because that was their order by their sovereign, you know, their god, Hirohito, so that disobeying such an order, regardless of whether or not it made common sense, would bring dishonor which is worse than death itself. So that is blindly following duty. But as it it applies to Kira, and this is where I think um, I found like really like a a satisfying connection with all of this. Blind faith as complacency. And Mm. she has been relegated by Cisco and by the Bajoran Fissional government not to make waves, not to engage, not to go against what she naturally is, this resistance fighter. So she is dying and has been dying ever since the surrender of the station, this slow death, this death of personality, this death of passion, this death of who she is. She's a fighter, and she has been taken out of the fight. She never compromised. She was the extremist who fought, and that is the revelation of what Yassim's death had to bring out in her. And I think Yassim knew that. I think that there's only one way to get the most influential fighter on this station back in the fight, and that is to shock her out of her way of complacency. 
that is blind faith to the nth degree and the exact opposite of how you get somebody out of something like that. So that's what I took away from this episode. You know, it, it's so funny. Again, we don't read each other's notes. And as we're just having a conversation in the last segment, blind faith kept going through my head. I goes, ooh, ooh th- th- this, is, this is the problem. This is the problem with this episode. It's just blind faith. That's right. And then here, here you have that three times in your, uh, in your final summary. Um, and I totally agree with you. I think that that is a great way to look at the, the problem that these characters are facing in this episode is this total dedication. Kira, of course, we already said, you know, she has a huge moment in this episode, series of moments that lead up to a great personal uh, revelation. She is realizing that she has become or has the potential to become a huge part of the problem. And that is not her. She is set to become a part of the system that she uh, would have opposed, the, the younger version of herself would have opposed and would have fought tooth and nail. And she absolutely put her life on the line back then. But as you pointed out, she is complacent, she is comfortable, and she has figured out every way in her head to justify her position, which is what's uh, the the sad revelation for the people around her who know her better until she can see it in herself. So then we talk about the Jem'Hadar and, and, you know, ethically, morally, where are we with them? Uh, Kievan has no honor whatsoever. He, he's just purely uh, the pragmatic uh, uh, self-preservation mode. Uh, that's where he is in this episode. The Jem'Hadar, yes, they have a sense of honor. Cisco does, too. And then you ask yourself, well, did Cisco do everything that he could? Did the Jem'Hadar do everything that they could to avoid this terrible situation? I wrote down some of the same lines that you did, uh, which was Ramataklan saying about Kievan, he doesn't have to earn my loyalty. To me, that is a huge red flag. That is one of the most chilling lines in the episode, to say that somebody who is your superior doesn't need to earn your loyalty, or replace that word with whatever respect or honor or whatever you want to put in there. Absolutely, our superiors should earn that and should earn that with every decision that they make. And then the other one, it is the order of things. That That is a chilling line that I'll, I'll come back to here in a second. The Jem'Hadar have honor and loyalty and a code to live by, but is it just? I'll take this back to other conversations that we've had on this very show to say that you could be dedicated to the wrong thing. You can display all these virtuous traits and you can mean those with great sincerity. But at heart, the principle is completely missing from the picture. And words like honor and duty are abused and and they have no use. They have no meaning unless the principle at heart is true and just. So in the end, it is the order of things feels like the, I was just following orders of the 24th century. It stops being about honor and it starts being about the easiest, laziest way to justify yourself out of a terrible, untenable, unjustifiable position. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. 
If you would like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Sons and Daughters. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Mission Log listeners, if you don't talk to your kids about Chief O'Brien's pants, who will? And transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.